Chapter 16 of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 16. She did not repeat the reproach, nor did Andrew put to her the question which he had asked himself. The amicable placidity, unruffled by quarrel, which marked their relations, was far too precious to be disturbed by an unnecessary plumbing of emotional depths. As far as he could grapple with psychological complexities, there had been nothing between them, through all the years, of the divine passion. She had come to him disillusioned and weary. He had come to her with a queer, superstitious gratitude for help in the past, and a full recognition of present sympathy and service. As the French say, they made together un bon ménage. Save for a few half-hysterical days during the war, and in that incomprehensible pre-war period at the end of which the birds came to her rescue, there had been little talk of love and dreams of delight, and the rest of the vaporous paradise of the mutually infatuated. He could not manifest, nor did she demand, a lover's ardour. It had all been as comfortable and satisfactory as you please. And now, at the most irrelevant moment, according to his masculine mind, came this cry of the heart. But was it of the heart? Did it not rather proceed from childish disappointment at his lack of enthusiastic praise of her splendid exploit? As I say, he judged it prudent to leave the problem unsolved. Of the exploit itself, needless to remark, she talked interminably. Generous and kind-hearted, he agreed with her arguments. Of the humiliation she had wrought for him, he allowed her to have no notion. He shivered all night at the degradation of his proudest honour. It had been gained, not as one of a batch of crosses handed over to the British military authorities for distribution, but on the field. He had come, with a handful of men, to the relief of a sorely pressed village held by the French. Somehow he had rallied the composite force, wiped out two or three nests of machine-guns, and driven out the Germans. As officer in command, he had consolidated the village, so that when the French came up, He'd handed it over to them as a victor. A French general had pinned the cross on his breast on a day of wind and rain and bursting shell, on a vast plain of unutterable devastation. The upholding of it before the mob of Marseilles had been a profanation. In these moments of anguished amazement he had suffered as he had never suffered in his life before, and he had been helpless. Before he realised what was being done, Elodie, in her tempestuous swiftness, had done it. It was only when she came to fix the cross on his breast that his soul sprang to irresistible revolt. He could have taken her by the throat and wrung it, and flung her away dead. Thus they were infinite leagues asunder. She met what amounted to wearily indulgent forgiveness when she had fully expected to reap the golden meed of heroism. The next morning she went about silent, perplexed, unhappy. By her stroke of genius she had secured for him a real success. If he had allowed her to crown the dramatic situation by pinning on the cross, his triumph had been such as the stage had never seen. "'Why didn't you let me do it?' she asked him. "'To complete a work of art,' said he, "'is always a mistake. You must leave something to the imagination.' "'But I did right. Tell me I did right.' Denial would have been a dagger thrust through a loyal heart. "'You acted, my dear,' said he, "'like a noble woman.' and she was aware of a shell which she could not pierce. From their first intimate days she had always felt him aloof from her, 
as a soldier during the war, she had found him the counterpart of the millions of men who had heroically fought. As an officer of high rank, as a general, she had stood in her attitude towards him in uneducated awe. As a general, demobilised, and a reincarnation of Petit Patou, he had inspired her with a familiarity bred not of contempt, that was absurd, but of disillusion. And now, to her primitive intelligence, he loomed again as an incomprehensible being, actuated by a moral network of motives, of which she had no conception. He escaped early from the little hotel, and wandered along the quays encumbered with mountains of goods awaiting transport, mighty crates of foodstuffs, bales of hay, barrels of wine from Algiers. Troops and sailors of all nations mingled with the dock employees who tried to restore order out of chaos. Calm goods trains whistled idly by the side of the ships or on sidings, the engine drivers lounging high above the crowd in Olympian indifference. The broken-down organisation had nothing to do with them. Here, in the din and the clatter and the dust, and the smell of tar and other seafaring things reeking shorewards under the blazing sun, Andrew could hide himself from the reputable population of the town. In the confusion of a strange world he could think. His life's unmeaningness overwhelmed him. He moved under the burden of its irony. In that she had hurled insulting defiance at a vast, rough audience, Elodie had done a valiant thing. She had done it for love of him. His failure to respond had evoked her reproach. But the very act for which she claimed due reward was a stab to the heart of any lingering love. And yet he must go on. There was no way out. He'd faced facts ever since the days of Ben Flint, and Elodie was a fact, the principal fact in his life. Curious that she should have faded into comparative insignificance during the war, especially during the last two years of it when he had not seen her. She seemed to have undergone a vehement resurrection. The shadow of the war had developed into the insistent flesh and blood of peace. He wandered far over the quay, where the ancient Algiers boat was on the point of departure, crammed with red tarbouched troops, zouaves, colonials, swarthy turcos and spahis, grinning blacks with faces like polished boots, all exultant in the approaching demobilisation. The grey-blue mass glistened with medals. The blacks were eating, with the contented merriment of children at a Sunday school treat. Andrew smiled at many memories. Black troops seemed always to be eating. As he stood watching, porters and pack-laden blue-helmeted poilus jostled him until he found a small oasis of quiet near the bows. Here a hand was clapped on his shoulder, and a voice said, "'Surely you're lackaday!' He turned and beheld the clean-cut bronzed face of a man in civilian dress. As often happens, what he had sought to avoid in the streaming streets of the town he had found in the wilderness, an acquaintance. It was one Arbuthnot, an Australian colonel of artillery, who, through the chances of war, had rendered his battalion great service. A keen, sparely-built man made of leather and whipcord, with the Australian's shrewd blue eyes. They exchanged the commonplaces of greeting. "'Demobilised,' said Andrew. "'Thank heaven. You seem glad.' "'Good Lord, I should think so. Aren't you glad it's all over?' "'I don't quite know,' said Andrew, smiling wistfully. "'Well, I am,' declared Arbuthnot. "'It was a beastly mess that had to be cleared up, and now it's done as far as my little responsibility is concerned. I'm delighted. I want to get back to my wife and family and lead the life of a human being. War's a dog's life. It has nothing to recommend it. 
It's as stupid and senseless as a typhoon. He laughed. What are you doing here? Andrew waved a hand. Putting in time? So am I, till my boat sails. I thought before I left I'd look at a merrier end of France. My gosh, they're a happy crowd. He pointed to the packed mass on board the ancient tub of the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique. You share their feelings, said Andrew. Arbuthnot glanced at him keenly. I heard they made you a brigadier, yes, and you've chucked it. I'm a civilian, even as you are, said Andrew. Arbuthnot pushed back his hat and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. For goodness sake, let us get out of this and sit down somewhere and have a talk. He moved away, Andrew following, and hailed a broken-down cab, a Victoria, which had just deposited a passenger by the steamer's side. "'To the Cannabier,' said he, and they drove off. "'If you have anything to do, please tell me. But I know nobody in this furnace of a town. You're a godsend.' A while afterwards they were seated beneath the awning of a crowded café on the Cannabier. Ceaseless thousands of the Glode's population passed by, from the bareheaded, impudent work-girls of Marseille, as like each other and the child a lady as peas in a pod, to the daintily costumed maiden, from the feathered flashing queen of the streets to the creping cumbered figure of the French war-widow, from the abject shuffler clad in flapping rags and frowsy beard, to the stout merchant dressed English fashion in grey flannels and straw hat, with two rolls of comfortable fat above his silk collar, from the stray British or American private perspiring in khaki, to splendid officers, French, Italian, Romanian, Serbian, Czechoslovak, bemedalled like the advertisements of patent foods. From the middle-aged, leaden-pipe-laden Marseille plumber in his blue smock, to the blue-uniformed Senegalese private, staring with his childish grin at the multitudinous hurrying sights of an unfamiliar crowd. Backwards and forwards they passed, in two thick, unending streams, and the roadway clashed with trams following each other, up and down, at fraction of a second intervals, and with a congestion of wagons, carts, cabs, automobiles, waiting patiently on the pleasure of these relentless, strident symbols of democracy. In his troubled mood, Andrew found Arbuthnot also a godsend. It was good to talk once more with a man of his own calibre about the things that had once so intensely mattered. He lost his shyness, and forgot for a time his anxieties. The rushing life before him had in its way a soothing charm to one resting, as it were, on the quiet bank. It was good, too, to talk English, or listen to it, for much of the talking was done by his companion. Arbuthnot was full of the big, beloved life that lay before him, of the wife and children whom he had not seen for four years, of his home near Sydney, of the Solomon Islands, where he spent the few healthy months of the year growing coconuts for copra and developing a pearl fishery. A glorious, free existence, said he, and real men to work with. Every able-bodied white in the Solomon Islands had joined up, some hundred and sixty of them. How many would be going back, alas, he did not yet know. They had been distributed among so many units of the Australian forces. But he was looking forward to seeing some of the old, hard-bitten faces in those isles of enchantment. I thought, said Andrew, that it rained all the year round on the Solomon Islands, that they were so depressing, in fact, that the natives ate each other to keep up their spirits. Arbuthnot protested vehemently. It was the loveliest climate in the world during the time that white folks stayed there. Of course, there was a rainy season, but then everybody went back to Australia. 
As for cannibals, he laughed. "'If you're at a loose end,' said he, "'come out with me and have a look round. "'We'll clear the war out of your system.' Andrew held a cigarette between the tips of his fingers and looked at the curling smoke. The picture of the reefs and surfs and white sands and palm-trees of those far-off islands rose, fascinating, before his eyes. And then he remembered that he had once a father and a mother, and a birthplace. "'Curiously enough,' he said, "'I am Australian-born.' He scarcely ever realised the fact. "'All the more reason,' said Arbuthnot heartily. "'Come with me on the Osway. Captain's a pal of mine. You'll fix up a bunk for you somewhere.' He offered boundless hospitality. Andrew grew more wistful. He thanked Arbuthnot. But— "'I'm a poor man,' said he, "'and have to earn my living at my old job.' "'And what's that?' "'I'm a music-hall artist,' said Andrew. "'You? Good Lord! I thought you'd been a soldier all your life, one of the old contemptibles.' "'I enlisted as a private in the Grenadier Guards,' smiled Andrew. "'I'm going to be a general in a brass hat, and now you're back on the stage. Somehow it doesn't fit. Do you like it?' Andrew winced at the intimate question of the frank and direct Australian. Last night's scenes swept across his vision, hateful and humiliating.' "'I have no choice,' said he. "'As before, on the quay, Arbuthnot looked at him keenly. "'I don't think you do like it. "'I've met hundreds of fellows who feel just the same as you. "'I'm different, as I told you. "'But I can understand the other point of view. "'Perhaps I should kick if I had to go back to a pokey office "'instead of a free, open-air life. "'After all, we're creatures of circumstance.' "'He paused to light a cigar. "'Andrew made no reply.' and the conversational topic died a natural death. They talked of other things, went back to Arras, the Somme, St. Quentin. Presently Arbuthnot, pulling out his watch, suggested lunch. Andrew rose, pleading an engagement, his daily engagement with Elodie at the stuffy little hotel double d'Hôte. But the other begged him for God's sake not to desert him in this lonely multitude. It would not be the act of a Christian and a comrade. Andrew was tempted feeling the charm and breeziness of the Australian like a breath of the free air of Flanders and Picardy. He went indoors to the telephone. Elodie, eventually found, responded. "'Of course her poor André must have his little pleasure. He deserved it, mon Dieu. It was gentil of him to consult her. And it had fallen out quite well, for she herself could not eat. The stopping had dislodged itself from one of her teeth, which was driving her mad with pain, and she was going to a dentist at one o'clock.' He commiserated with her on her misadventure. Elodie went into realistic details of the wreck of the gold stopping on the praline stuffing of a chocolate. Then an anguished, Ne m'occupez pas, mademoiselle. But mademoiselle of the exchange cut ruthlessly, and Andrew returned to Arbuthnot. I'm at your service, said he. Arbuthnot put himself into Lackaday's hands. The best place, the best food. It was not often he had the honour of entertaining a British general unawares. Andrew protested. The other insisted. The general was his guest. Where should they go? Somewhere characteristic. He was sick of the food at grand hotels. It was the same all the world over. Stockholm, Tokyo, Scarborough, Melbourne, Marseille. Marseille has nothing to boast of in the way of cookery, said Andrew, save its bouillabaisse. Now what's that? cried Arbuthnot. I've sort of heard of it. My dear fellow, said Andrew, with his ear-to-ear grin, to live in Marseille and be innocent of bouillabaisse is like having gone through the war without tasting bully-beef. 
he was for dragging him to the little restaurant up a side street in the heart of the town, which is the true shrine of Buebes. But Arbuthnot had heard vaguely of another place, celebrated for the dish, where one could fill one's lungs as well as one's stomach. The reserve. "'That's it. Taxi!' cried Arbuthnot. So they drove out and sat in the cool gallery of the reserve, by a window-table, and looked on the blue Mediterranean, and the wondrous dish was set before them and piously served by the maître d'hôtel. Rascas, loup de mer, postel, langouste, a studied helping of each in a soup-plate, then the sodden toast from the tureen, and the ladles of clear, rich, yellow liquid, flavoured with saffron and with an artist's inspiration of garlic, the essence of the dozen kinds of fish that had yielded up their being to the making of the bouillabaisse. The perfect serving of it is a ceremonial in the grand manner. Arbuthnot, regarding his swimming plate, looked embarrassed. "'Knife, fork, and spoon,' said Andrew. They ate for a while in silence. Then Arbuthnot said, "'Do you remember that wonderful chapter in Meredith's Egoist when Sir Willoughby Paterne offers the second bottle of the Paterne port to Dr. Middleton, Clara's father? And the old fellow says, "'I have but a girl to give?' "'Well, I feel like that. This is the most wonderful eating that humanity has ever devised. I'm not a glutton. If I were, I should have sampled this before. I'm just an uncivilised man from the bush, overwhelmed by a new sensation. I'm your debtor-general to all eternity. And your genius in recommending this wine—' He filled Andrew's glass with Cezano's Astis Pimenti. "'He's worthy of the man who saw us out at Borden Wood.' "'By the way,' he added after a pause, "'what really happened afterwards?' I knew you got through, but we poor devils of gunners, we do our job, and away we go to loose off hell at another section, and we never get a clear knowledge of the results. I'll tell you in a minute, said Andrew, emptying the salt cellars and running a trench-making finger through the salt, and disposing pepper-pots, knives and spoons, and supplementing these material objects with lead pencil lines on the tablecloth, all vestiges of the bouillabaisse having been cleared away. You see, here were the German lines— here were their machine-guns. "'A my little lot,' said Arbuthnot, tapping a remote corner, "'was somewhere over here.' They worked out the taking of Borden wood. A medallion de veau perigodin, a superimposition of toast, foie gras, veal, and truffles, interrupted operations. They concluded them more languidly before the cheese. The mild, mellow asti softened their hearts, so that at the end of the exquisite meal— in the mingled aroma of coffee, a cigarette, and the haunting saltness of the sea. They spoke, with Andrew's eternal reserve, like brothers. "'My dear fellow,' said Arbuthnot, "'the more I talk to you, the more impossible does it seem that you should settle down to your pre-war job. Why don't you chuck it and come out with me on a business footing?' "'I have no capital,' said Andrew. "'You don't need much, but a few thousands.' He might have said a few millions, for all Andrew's power to command such a sum. The other continued his fairy tale of the islands. They were going to boom one of these near days. Fortune lay to the hand of the man who came in first. Labour was cheap, the world was shrieking for copra, the transport difficulty would soon adjust itself, and then a dazzling reward. It was quite possible, he suggested with some delicacy, to find financial aid, and in the meantime to do management work on a salary, so as to keep himself going. The qualities which made him a general were just those which out there would command success. And, Australian-born as he was, 
he could claim a welcome among his own people. "'I can guarantee you a living, anyhow,' said the enthusiast. "'Think it over, and let me know before the Osboy sails.' It was a great temptation. If he were a free man, he would have cast off the garb of Petit Patou for ever, and gone to seek fortune in a new world where he could unashamedly use his own name and military rank among men who did men's work and thought all the better of a man for doing the same. And also he became conscious of a longing to leave France for a season. France was passing through a post-war stage of disgruntlement and suspicion, drawing tight around her feet her tricoloured skirts, so that they should not be touched by the passing foreigner. France was bleeding from her wounds, weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted. The Englishman in Andrew stood hurt and helpless before this morbid, convulsive nationalism. Like a woman in certain emotional states, she were better left alone for a while, till she recovered and smiled her benevolent graciousness again. Yet, if he remained Petit Patou, he must stay in France, the land of his professional adoption. From appearing on the English stage he shrank with morbid sensitiveness. There was America, where he was unknown. Already Moignon was in touch on his behalf with powerful American agencies. Just before he left Paris, Moignon had said, "'They are nibbling for the winter.' But it was all vague. France alone appeared solid, in spite of the disasters of those first two nights. "'I wish to God,' he cried suddenly after a long silence, "'I wish to God I could cut everything and come with you.' "'What prevents you?' said Arbuthnot. "'I have ties,' said he. Arbuthnot met the grim look on his face, which forbade further questioning. "'Ah,' said he. "'Still,' he added with a laugh, "'I'm at the Hotel de Noy till Friday, that is to say.' He explained that he was going the next day to Monte Carlo, which he had never seen, to spend a night or two, but would return in good time for the sailing of the Osway and the hearing of General Lacadet's final decision. On their drive back to Marseille, Arbuthnot, during a pause in their talk, said, "'What I can't understand is this. "'If you're on the musical stage, "'what the deuce are you doing in Marseille?' "'I'm here on business with my partner,' Andrew replied curtly. "'If it weren't for that, a business engagement, "'I'd ask you to spend the evening with me,' he added. "'What are you going to do?' "'I went to the theatre last night. "'What else is there?' "'They have an excellent review at the El Dorado. "'Go there.' "'I will,' said Arbuthnot. "'Andrew breathed freely.' relieved from the dread lest this genial and unsuspecting brother-in-arms should wander into Olympia and behold, what, what kind of a performance, what kind of a reception, all apart from beholding him in his green silk tights and painted face. They parted to the Hotel de Noy. The Australian shook him warmly by the hand. "'This has been one of the great days of my life,' said he, with his frank smile. "'The day when I return and you tell me you're coming with me will be a greater.' Andrew walked away in a glow. Here was a man of proved worth, proved in the furnace in which they had met, straight as his eyes, sincere to his soul, who had claimed him as a leader of the great brotherhood, who, with a generosity acceptable under the unwritten law of that brotherhood's freemasonry, had opened his way to freedom and a man's lahai. Whether he could follow the way or not was another matter. The fact of the generous opening remained, a heartening thing for all time. You may perhaps remember that, 
in the introductory letter which accompanied the manuscript and is quoted at the beginning of this record of the doings of Andrew Lackaday, he remarks, At the present moment I am between the devil and the deep sea. I am hoping that the latter will be the solution of my difficulties. This was written in his hotel room as soon as he returned. Elodie, unnerved by an overdriven dentist's torture, lay resting in her bedroom with closed windows and drawn shutters. He was between the devil of Petipatuism and the deep sea, beyond which lay the fortunate isles, where men were men and coconuts were gold, and where the sweat could roll down your leather skin, undefiled with grease paint. When he had finished writing, he dined with a curiously preoccupied, though pain-relieved, Elodie. He attributed our unusual mood either to anxiety as to their reception at Olympia after the previous night's performance, or to realisation of the significance of her indiscretion. She ate little, drank less, and scarcely spoke at all. They reached the music hall. Andrew changed into his tights. The little dresser retailed the gossip of the place. Elodie had undoubtedly caused a sensation. The dresser loudly acclaimed Madame's action as a beau geste. "'In these days of advertisement one can't afford to be so modest, mon général,' said he. "'And I, for example, who committed the stupidity of asking whether you had served in the war. "'Tonight we are going to see something quite different.' Andrew laughed. Haunted by the great seas and the Solomon Islands and the palm-trees, he found himself scarcely interested in his reception. The audience could talk and cough and hiss as much as they liked. He practically told them to go to the devil last night. He was quite ready, if need be, to do it again. He was buoyed up by a sublime indifference. The singer was ending her encore from La Traviata when he went down the aisle stairs. Elodie met him punctually, for they had agreed to avoid the dreary wait. As soon as the stage was set and the curtain up, he went on, and was greeted by a round of applause. Somehow the word had been passed round the populace that formed the Olympic clientele. Thenceforward the performance went without a hitch, to the attentive gratification of the audience. There was no uproarious demonstration, but they laughed in the right places, and acclaimed satisfactorily his finale on the giant violin. They gave him a call, to which he responded, leading Elodie by the hand. For himself he hardly knew whether to feel relief or contempt, but Elodie, blindly stumbling through the cages of the performing dogs in the wings, almost broke down. "'Now all goes well. Confess I was right.' He turned at the bottom of the stairs. "'Yes, as I confess, you did what was right to make it go well.' She scanned his face to read his meaning. Of late he had grown so remote and difficult to understand. He put his arm round her kindly and smiled and near by his smile, painted to the upper tip of each ear, was grotesquely horrible. "'Why, yes, little goose, now everything will go on wheels.' "'That is true?' she asked anxiously. "'I swear it,' said he. When they reached the hotel, she swiftly discarded the walking clothes and slipped on her wrapper, in which only was she the real Elodie, and went to his room and sat on the little narrow bed. "'Mon ami,' said she, I have something to tell you. I would not speak this afternoon because it was necessary that nothing should disturb your performance. Andrew lit a pipe and sat down in the straight-backed armchair. What's the matter? I had to wait an hour at the dentist's. Why these people say one o'clock when they mean two, 
except to make you think they are so busy that they do you a favour to look inside your mouth and can charge you whatever they like. Thirty francs the monster charged me. You ought to go and tell him it was a robbery. My dear, he interrupted, thus cutting out the predicate of a rhetorical sentence, you surely couldn't have thought a dentist free of thirty francs would have put me off my work. She threw up her arms. Mon dieu, men are stupid. No, listen, I had to wait an hour. I had to distract myself. Well, you know the supplement to l'illustration that has appeared every week during the war, the pages of photographs of the heroes of France? I found them, all collected in a portfolio on the table. Ah, some living, but mostly dead. It was heartbreaking. And you know what I found? I found this. I stole it. She drew from her pocket peignoir a crumpled page covered with vignette photographs of soldiers, a legend underneath each one, and handed it to Andrew, her thumb indicating a particular portrait. There, look! And Andrew looked, and beheld the photograph of a handsome, vast-moustachioed, rake-helly officer of Zouave, labelled as Captain Ryle Morosco, who had died gloriously for France on the 26th of March, 1917. For a second or two he groped for some association with a far-distant past. "'But don't you see?' cried Elodie. "'It is my husband. He has been dead for over two years.'" End of chapter 16